you are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, good morning again, CBC. Uh, Happy 4th of July weekend. Hopefully you've got some fun plans with friends and family, um, but we're glad that you're here this morning. you're probably wondering at this point, who is this guy? Um, so let me just brief, I know I'm not like a super familiar face to you, and so just allow me to introduce myself briefly. My name is Tyler. Uh, I'm one of the uh, student ministers here. I'm the associate student minister. And so what that means is that I spend the majority of my time with our middle school students and a good portion of my time with our high school students as well. Um, and some of them are in this room. You couldn't get away from me. I'm here again, all right? Um, but man, it is a joy and a privilege uh, to get to be with them so frequently. Um, they, they are a joy and they're a gift and so grateful to get to do what I do. Um, I thought it would be appropriate this morning then uh, to give you a little bit of a glimpse into the life of a middle school or high school student, okay? Um, and you're like, oh, where's he going with this? Uh, it's okay, it's all good. I wanna, I wanna introduce you uh, to one of their stars or celebrities, so to speak, all right? Um, his name is Mr. Beast, all right? And obviously that's not really his name. Uh, that sounds more like an email address that you make in elementary school, right? Like MrBeast1234 at gmail.com. That's a good one, right? Just for fun, my, my email growing up was something along the lines of uh, Spider-Man Tyler at bellsouth.net, right? You remember Bell South? <laughs> I dated myself there. Anyways, Mr. Beast, also known as Jimmy Donaldson is his name, uh, is a YouTuber, all right? So he makes videos and he puts them on YouTube. And six, seven years ago, uh, as a random 20-year-old, Mr. Beast, Jimmy Donaldson, made this video of himself counting to 100,000. Counting from one all the way to 100,000. This is, this is the video. That, that, that's it. Him counting from one to 100,000. And it took him 40 hours to do that. And so obviously YouTube doesn't have the capacity for a 40 hour uh, video. So it's, trim, it's like sped up and it's 24 hours. I didn't watch it. Don't, don't worry, I didn't waste my time. But it's there, it's on YouTube. You can go and see this video of this guy uh, counting to 100,000 in, in one sitting. And this is what's crazy. Today, Mr. Beast, Jimmy Donaldson, is now worth over $500 million, according to Forbes, for making videos and putting them on the internet. For, for making videos of counting to 100,000, putting them on the internet, he's now worth over $500 million. It's wild, Right, and, and parents, this is, a little, this, this is why nobody wants to work today, because mom and dad, <laughs> there is potential, mom and dad, to, f- to make $500 million by making these videos and putting them on YouTube of counting to 100,000. Um, how can I pass up that opportunity, right? I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see celebrities, maybe particularly like this, I ask like, why, God? Like, why, like, he, he, he counted to 100,000 and, and now he's, he's worth over 500, like what? 
And maybe you can like fill in the blank with, with uh, some celebrity, right? Somebody from the entertainment industry, whether it's an artist or an actor, actress, right? A professional athlete. And maybe that person doesn't even like follow God. They're not trying to live their life in a way that like honors and pleases God. And yet here they are like making millions of dollars, having this life of, of ease and, and excitement and fun and increasing in riches. And we ask the question like, why, like, why them, God? And maybe it's not even just celebrities that we look at, but maybe it's even people in our own life. As we're scrolling on Instagram and Facebook, we see people, they're not, fo- they're not following Jesus. They're not following God. And, and here they are traveling the world and have all these nice things and luxurious lifestyle and, and seem to have just like their life made. Like it's awesome. And you're like, God, that, Why? Right, like, and, it, and it's easy to see them and ask the question, why, like, why them and, and not me? Like, I want those things. And it's easy for us in those times to turn to God going, why does it seem like you're blessing them? People who aren't following you. And meanwhile, here I am, and, I, and I'm, I'm really like trying, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm trying to live a life of holiness and uprightness. I'm trying to live a life that's honoring to you. I'm trying to love and serve others like you've called me to do. And what do I get for it? I get bags under my eyes and taxes. <laughs> What's the deal, God? What's going on? Why, like, why them? When my life is so hard and I'm trying. This is what the author of our psalm experienced in a nutshell. Some of the same things that the author of this psalm today was experiencing are the same perspective and feelings that we sometimes find ourselves in. Turn with me to Psalm 73. This summer, we've been walking through uh, different psalms. And so today we're gonna be in Psalm 73. And as you turn there, you're gonna see that the first line of this psalm says that it is a psalm of Asaph. And once again, you're like, who's that guy? Who's that guy? Asaph. Um, kind of a funky name. Asaph, all right, if we were to turn back to 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and 16, right? 1 Chronicles, everybody's favorite book of the Bible. Um, it's full of awesome, yeah. 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, we would find that David, King David had appointed this group of Levite ministers uh, to be kind of these temple musicians. They would play and lead worship in the temple of, of God. And then we would also see that David not only appointed this group, but he appointed Asaph as kind of the chief is, what, is, is the language that scripture uses. He's the chief or the leader of this group of people. Essentially, Asaph was the worship leader in the temple of God. Maybe he would have looked a little bit something like this. <laughs> Good looking dude there. Hillary, Hillary's a lucky, lucky gal. Um, This picture actually isn't uh, super accurate, not just because Gardner's face is on it, but because uh, Asaph actually uh, was appointed to sound the cymbals, not not the harp. And so you can see this next picture. This is a little more accurate. Um, Asaph kind of up front there leading and and sounding the cymbals. What a great instrument there, sounding the cymbals. Awesome job, Asaph. we would also see, if we, if we turn in, it's a second Chronicles 29, King Hezekiah commanded the Levites, it says, to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph. 
And so here's what we know about Asaph from scripture, mainly from first and second Chronicles, is that Asaph was a musician. He was a singer. He was the, the chief worship leader. And he was also a psalmist, that he also wrote songs as David uh, did. And this, Psalm 73, is one of his psalms. And so let's look together at verse one to see how he begins this psalm. He says this, verse one, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So that word truly, right? He is making a truth claim here that God is good to his people. He's good to Israel and he's good to those who are pure in heart. This is, this is core and fundamental to what they believed about God, that he is good to his people. He's good to those who fear him, who follow him, who are faithful to him, who, who live in his way. And he's also good himself. Psalm 25, eight, David says, good and upright is the Lord. God is good. He is good. Psalm 16, two, he says, David says, I have no good apart from you. So not only is God good, but he's also good to his people and he gives good gifts and blessings to his people. And this is a fundamental and core truth about Christianity, about our God, that God is good and he's good to his people. And this is why we have sayings in church, right? Get ready for it. That God is good all the time and all the time. God is good, right? Like we know this and we've heard this over and over and over again, that God is good and he's good to his people. This is core and fundamental, but yet Asaph, the chief worship leader of God's people had almost stopped believing this. Look with me in verse two. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Right, saying, God is good. I know this, it's true. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What Asaph is doing here is he's recalling a time that he had almost stopped believing this core and fundamental truth that God is good and that he's good to his people. Saying there was a time when I doubted and questioned forgot about or maybe lost sight of the goodness of God and his goodness towards his people. Clint asked us a question a few weeks back. He said, what causes you to doubt, question, or forget about the goodness of God and his goodness towards you? And this is the question worth thinking about again. What scenarios, what things in my life cause me to doubt and question or forget about the goodness of God and his goodness towards me. For Asaph, he would answer this question with when he looked at the prosperity of the wicked. Look with me at verse three. So he says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He said, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph took his eyes and his focus off of the goodness of God and put it on the arrogant and the prospering wicked. And when he did this, envy gripped his heart. He said, I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, envy gripped his heart. I want what they have, what I don't. 
I don't have what they have and I want that. Envy gripped his heart. What the world has, what the wicked have, those are the things that I want. Envy gripped his heart and he goes on for nine verses about the prospering wicked. Look, look at me with, uh, to verse four through 12. Four through 12, we're gonna read that together. It says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? He sums it up, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. It's kind of interesting language that he uses here. So let's walk through it together. He says, they have no pangs till death and they're fat and sleek. He's highlighting their health. Say, man, the wicked seem to like have no, like they don't even have health problems until like the day that they die, right? They, 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 they're well fed, right? He's highlighting their good health and that they ha- they're, they're not lacking in food. And though he's envying the wicked here, gentlemen, fat and sleek is not a compliment, all right? So don't say that to your wife. Um, no pangs until death. They're fat and sleek. They're not lacking food. They're in good health. And he says, they're not in trouble like others are. He says, they're full of pride and violence and oppression in order to stay rich and increase in wealth and power. He says, their hearts overflow with follies. In other words, they have everything they could wish for, ask for. They just have whatever they, they like want. They just have. They set their mouth against the heavens and say, how can God know? And so we see that their heart is not only far from God, but it's against God. It's against him. They mock him, speak lies, and think that he doesn't see their wickedness and their sin. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? And so Asaph is like, they seem like they get away with everything. He says, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. He's saying people actually listen to these people. And not only do they listen to them, but they like them. They adore them. Like these people are popular and they're loved and they're listened to. And yet their mouth is against you, God. This, This doesn't make sense. And he sums it up, verse 12. He says, this is the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase in riches. And so he's gone on for nine verses about his envy of the wicked and all their prospering. And where does it leave him? It leaves him first to doubt about the goodness of God. It leads him to doubt the goodness of God and his goodness towards him, to Asaph and to his people. We already saw this in verse two, right? He said, my, he said, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I almost stopped believing this core and fundamental truth that God is good and he's good to his people. But it also leads him to self-pity and weariness, leads them to self-pity and weariness. Look with me at verse 13 through 16. He says this, so he said, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean 
and wash my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Here Asaph is saying, I've actually tried to follow you and obey you, God. Like I'm trying here. Again, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to live godly and righteously. I'm trying to follow in your ways, but it doesn't seem to matter because here I am the one struggling and in trouble and being corrected and disciplined while the wicked prosper and live in ease. This doesn't seem fair, God. All in vain, right? Do you hear the pity party here? All in vain have I kept my heart clean. Wash my hands in innocence. All in vain have I like followed in your ways. It's not paying out for me because I'm the one struggling. I'm the one in hardship while the wicked are not following you. They're not seeking to please you. And here they are living this life of ease and increasing in riches. Essentially what Asaph is asking, he's saying, why do good things happen to all these bad people and bad things happen to good people? It's the question we ask sometimes ourselves, right? It doesn't seem to matter. Is it all in vain? And this wore him out. Seemed to him a wearisome task when he tried to understand this. And this is exactly what envy will do in our heart. Envy will lead us into doubt, self-pity, and weariness. This is, this is where envy leads us. It leads us to doubt the goodness of God, right? Like it's, it's easy to lose sight of the goodness of God and all of his goodness towards us when our heart and our eyes are set on what we don't have and what other people have. It's easy to lose sight of the goodness of God when we see all the wicked and and, and bad people prospering, increasing in riches, living this life of ease and luxury. God, what's going on? And it leads us into this self-pity. When we look at the prosperity of the wicked in the world, it can lead us to think that our seeking to follow Jesus isn't worth it. It's all in vain, God, have have I been following you? It's not worth it, 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 it's all in vain and it's not fair. Why am I even doing this anyways? If they're gonna prosper and I'm not. There's a guy named Trip Lee and in one of his books, he, he wrote this. I want you to see this quote. He says, sometimes it seemed like the entire world is going in one direction and God is asking us to go the other way. And it wouldn't be so hard to follow him if everyone didn't seem like they're having such a good time. And this is where Asaph was at. This is where we sometimes find ourselves when we see and look at the world. Man, it seems like they're having fun. Like, God, I'm trying to follow in your way. I'm trying to obey you. And it wouldn't be so hard if it didn't seem like everybody else was just living this great life and having more fun and having less, less like difficulty and troubles than what I've seemed to have. These people are just doing whatever they want. They aren't trying to honor you and please you and glorify you. And it seems like you're blessing them. What's going on? Meanwhile, he's like, I'm, I'm trying to follow you and obey you and life is hard and difficult. And so when we live in this place, when we think this way, when this is our perspective, it will weary us out. It's gonna be a wearisome task when we think about these things all the time. 
It's gonna wear us out and suck the life and the joy right out of us, right? When we are envying the prosperity of the wicked, when our eyes are set on all that they have that we don't, we're not gonna abound in thanksgiving. We're not gonna, we're not gonna live content lives. We're not gonna live with the joy of the Lord. We're not gonna, we're not gonna live lives of praise because we're focused on what we don't have. God, why don't you give me those things? And so we can find ourselves in the same place of Asaph, envying the wicked, doubting the goodness of God, throwing a pity party. Why am I even doing this? And we're weary. This doesn't make sense, God. And so what do we, what do, we do with that? When we find ourselves in that place, what do we do? When Asaph sought to understand this, when he sought to understand his experience of seeing the wicked prosper, while the godly, including himself, were in trouble and rebuked, it wore him out. He said, it, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It wearied him to follow after God while feeling like it didn't matter or do him any good. And he couldn't make sense of it until he went into the sanctuary in the presence of God. Read verse 16 and 17 with me. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, this is the turning point of the Psalm here, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. What Asaph is saying is, man, it wearied me to think about this until I went in the sanctuary of God, until I went into the presence of God, before, until I went before the Lord in worship, then it started to make sense. Why? Because the presence of God brings perspective and clarity and rest. The presence of God brings perspective and clarity and rest. When we come before the Lord in his word, in prayer, in worship, in fellowship with other believers, what we gain is God's perspective and his clarity and his rest. The rest that we so desperately need, right? When we envy, when we find ourselves envying the worldly and the wicked, when that kind of envy has gripped our heart, when we're doubtful of God's goodness and his goodness towards us, when we're throwing a pity party for ourselves, when we're weary from trying to figure out why life seems so unfair, what we need more than anything else is the perspective and the clarity and the rest that comes from being with God and being in his presence. Do you need perspective? Do you need clarity, wisdom? Do you need rest? We find it in the presence of God when we go before him in word and prayer and worship and fellowship, we find it because it's in him. And so Asaph gains perspective as he goes into the presence of God. He gains perspective and we see him gain perspective in three ways. Look with me at verse 17 through 20. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
Asaph's, the first way that he gains perspective in the presence of God is that he gains perspective on the wicked. He gains perspective on what will come of the wicked, that their end is destruction, right? They may think, oh, is it, God doesn't know. Is there knowledge in the most high? He doesn't see my, my sin, my, my wickedness. But the truth is God does see and God does know. The truth is Colossians 3 says the wrath of God is coming. That the truth is Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The truth is 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. He does see and he does know. And though the arrogant and the wicked may prosper now and in this life, their end is death and destruction. Though they have the life now, they do not have eternal life. And so Asaph is gaining the perspective of what will come of the wicked. And, and, and this is what I think he, he is, he's seeing is that the wicked are not to be envied. They're to be pitied. God has set them in slippery places. They may not even know that their end is destruction. Maybe they're blinded by all this ease and riches. They're not to be envied. This life will pass like that. Though they have ease and riches now, it's gonna fade away, it's gonna perish. And they don't know the life and the joy that God offers. And so he gains perspective on what will come of the wicked. They're not to be envied, they're to be pitied. And then he gains perspective on himself and his sin. Read with me verse 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph is seeing his sin more clearly. When he goes into the presence of God, he sees his sin and his ugliness more clearly. His envy of the wicked and his self-pity led him to act in ugly and bitter and angry ways towards God. When he wasn't getting what he wanted, I'm, I'm never, I'm never ceased to be amazed by the way, like how quick anger and bitterness can rise up in my heart when I don't get my way. When, when things don't go the way that I want, or when I don't get the thing that I want, right? Like I hope I'm not the only one, right? Like very quickly, when, when, when things don't go my way, anger and bitterness rise up in me maybe at somebody else, but even at God. God, why, why, why can't I get that? Why, why can't I have what, what they have? When we go in the presence of God, when we see his holiness, we realize and we see our sin more clearly. Just like Asaph and just like Isaiah in chapter six, Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah gets this vision of the Lord on his throne and the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a sinner. I'm unclean. I shouldn't be before you. This, this is what happens when we come in the presence of God is we actually start to see our sin more clearly. That we might confess and repent of these things. 
And so Asaph gains perspective of his own sin. And then thirdly, he gains perspective on God and his goodness. He gains perspective on God and his goodness. Read verse 23 and 26 with me, or through 26. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is, this is so beautiful. Don't miss this. I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast towards you, God. I was acting in ugly and angry ways, bitter ways against you. And then he says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I'm continually with you. God continues to give Asaph his presence, right? He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. There's his presence and his guidance and his counsel. He says, you guide me with your counsel and also God's glory, Afterward, you will receive me to glory. This is amazing news, right? Because here's the deal. Even in our ugliness, in our brokenness, in our sin, because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, we too are promised his presence and his counsel and his glory. Scripture says that we will share in his glory for all eternity. This is what is offered to us in Jesus. And this is amazing to see Asaph recognizing and realizing the goodness of God to him in the midst of his ugliness and his sin. God, even when I'm not good, you're good. Even when I'm not good to you, you're good to me and you give me your presence and your counsel and your glory. And so as God helps Asaph zoom out and gain his perspective, Asaph starts to realize that he's the one winning out, not the wicked. That he's the one that has the better end of the deal, not because he has the riches and the ease that the wicked have, but because he has the greatest treasure of all time. And it's God himself. God himself, Asaph is realizing here in the presence of God that God's presence and his counsel and his eternal glory is far better than anything that the world has to offer. He's far better than anything that he could have envied in the life of the wicked. And this is what leads him to say, right? His, his, his renewed perspective of God and his goodness. This is what leads him to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing. Really, Asaph? Like that is, that's passionate and affectionate language. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. Someone once said, or rather sang, some people live for the fortune. Some people live just for the fame. Some people live for the power. Sing it with me if you know it. Some people want it all, but I don't want nothing at all. 
If it ain't you, baby. If it ain't you, baby. I love me some Alicia Keys, but Asaph wrote that song first. He did. He says, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. If it isn't you, I don't want it. I want you because you're better. You're better than anything the world has to offer. And he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Because he's better, he's my portion. I'm gonna choose him as my portion. I choose you, God, just like Moses. L- listen to this passage, Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses, just like Asaph, realized that even if I have to endure some reproach and hardships and suffering now, even if I have to miss out on maybe some ease and and, and riches and fleeting pleasures now, it's worth it because God is my reward, that he's better than those things that his presence and his counsel and his glory far outweighs anything that the world can give me. I want him more than anything else and I choose him, he's my portion. And this is Asaph's renewed perspective kind of summed up in verse 27 and 28, look with me. He says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God puts an end to the unfaithful and far from him, but he's saying I get God and I get his nearness and I get him as my refuge. He's saying I get the better end of the deal here. And do you notice how Asaph's heart has shifted from the beginning of the Psalm? Where once he was bent out of shape about not having what the wicked have. At that point, he would have, he would have been saying something along the lines of, man, it would be good to get those things. It would be good to receive those things. It would be good to take, right? It would be good for you, God, to give me what they have be good to, to get those things. Now he says, it is good not to get, not to receive, but to be near God, to be near him. And what I really love about this Psalm and hate at the same time is that it can expose our heart and our motivations even in following God, even in following Jesus, sometimes we can make our pursuit about God really about us and our own prosperity, ease, and glory. Maybe we go to church to feel good about ourselves and get a good reputation, not to be with God and his people. Maybe we read our Bible sometimes, not to know God and be conformed to his image, but because we want a helpful life hack or tip something to make my life a little easier. 
We pray not for the purposes of communion and intimacy with God or seeking his will, but we pray because we want God to accomplish our own selfish will. And if, and if I'm following you, God, and I don't get these things, then maybe it's all in vain, like Asaph once thought. And so this Psalm makes us ask questions. Do I really want God or just what I think I can get from him? Am I pursuing him or am I just pursuing a better life through him? Am I following him because of the return on investment that I think I can get from him? Or because he's worthy of my entire life and that he's better than anything else that I could get? And this is the question I want us to really consider together is this, that could I truthfully say the same thing that Asaph said at the end of the psalm, that there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's hard to really say and believe. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. How can we get there? How can, how can our heart get to a place where we can say to God, honestly, God, there is nothing on earth that I desire more than you. That you are what I want more than anything else. I think the way that this happens is by seeing ever more clearly and consistently and frequently the goodness and the glory and the beauty of God that the more that we see him, the more that we desire him, the more that we see his glory and his beauty and his goodness, the more that we desire and want him. The more that we see his glory, the more the other things don't seem as great. And that he just seems better. And so the way that we see his goodness more clearly and consistently and frequently is by looking to the cross of Christ. The goodness of God is displayed fully and clearly in the gospel of Jesus. That, that though I was ugly, I was brutish, I was against you, God. That, that my mouth was against the heavens. I, I didn't know you, I was lost, but yet you pursued me in the person and work of Jesus Christ and you died on the cross in my place so that I might receive forgiveness from you and that you rose to life three days later so that I may receive eternal life forever and share in your glory forever. This is what is offered to us in Christ Jesus just by our faith in him as Lord. And when we see and remember God's goodness in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we might be able to say, man, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. So when we find ourselves doubting, questioning, or forgetting about the goodness of God, or his goodness towards us, when we, when we find ourselves envying the prosperity and the ease of the wicked, throwing pity parties for ourselves, thinking it isn't worth it, when we're baffled and wearied about why life seems so unfair, what we need more than anything else is to look to the cross again and again and again to see his goodness and his glory displayed in Christ Jesus. And that's my hope and my prayer for us is that as we gain 
better perspective and greater clarity on God's goodness to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would get to a place where we can say, God, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I don't want those things. God, I want you. Let's pray together. Father, again, we're grateful that you are truly good and you're good to us in so many ways, but mainly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're so good and yet, God, we often don't see you or think that you're that good. We confess that together in our sinfulness, God. We do not see you for who you really are. And so God, would you help us to see you and your goodness more clearly? Would you help us to remember, God, to live in this this state of awareness of your goodness and your goodness towards us? So that we may be a people who live with joy and you, contentment and you, and praise and glory and honor to your name. We want you, God. Would you help us to know you, see you, and love you. We pray and we ask that in the near name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you guys can stand, let's sing together.